Okay, so we're going to uh, turn again to 1 Corinthians 15. We've been reading this letter on and off for quite a wee while now. We're now in the, the home straight, but in some ways, as we saw last week, the climactic chapter. There's still chapter 16, which has lots of interesting little detail in it about people and places and greetings and warnings and so on. But the main bulk of the letter uh, ends here. We've been uh, learning about this um, crazy church in Corinth, uh, a crossing place in Greece uh, on a trading route, both east and west and north and south, a city that was very, very diverse in terms of its social stratification. There were the, the, the richest and the highest, the traders and the merchants and the people who made the profit, right the way down to free men and then slaves and those who were the lowest echelons in society, and a very multicultural group as well, uh, a church that had uh, both Jews and Gentiles in it um, and uh, people from different, uh, different directions. And so we've seen something of the, the struggles of this church trying to find its feet, uh, trying to find its way, getting it wrong a lot of the time, uh, incurring Paul's um, displeasure as someone who spent quite a bit of time with them, um, helping them to uh, just, uh, he planted the church and then helping them uh, to grow in their faith. And now they've written to him with some questions that they have. And he's also heard some reports that have come back to him about some of their uh, conduct, some of their um, ways of living that are not uh, in accordance with the gospel or Christian discipleship. So he's taken them to task on those. So we've gone through a number of issues, rivalries in the church, uh, sexual morality and immorality and standards, uh, how to deal with um, being a Christian in the workplace um, in terms of idol feasts and, and how are you supposed to balance being a Christian if your workplace and the requirements of your work take you into uh, back into paganism. Uh, we've looked at gifts of the Holy Spirit and a church struggling to manage with grace and with love uh, the phenomena of the, the, the movement of the Holy Spirit in the church and to make sure that the place doesn't just descend into a cacophony of chaos and that love is at the center. And so there you are, a little whistle-stop recap of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and now we come to this crowning point uh, in the chapter where Paul has heard uh, that the church is uh, there's some people in the church who are questioning, even doubting, uh, that resurrection is a real thing. Uh, people who've come in around saying, dead people don't rise again, that's just nonsense. Um, and that thinking is starting to infect and affect the church. And so Paul is taking them to task because the resurrection and belief in the resurrection is so foundational it's so fundamental to being a Christian. It's the, the absolute epicenter of what uh, we believe and what anchors us in a relationship to God and what Jesus has done for us, that he's not going to let this one pass. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15. The words will be up there on the screen, but there are Bibles on the tables at the side if you want to follow along. I'm going to read again the same passage I read last week, which we started on. Um, but pretty much we got up to around about verse 19 there or thereabouts last week. So we're going to do, do a wee recap and then pick it up mainly from verse 20. But we're going to read the whole passage so we hear it in context. Now, brothers and sisters, 
I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for He has put everything under His feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under Him, it is clear that this does not include God Himself who put everything under Christ. When He has done this, then the Son Himself will be made subject to Him who put everything under Him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? 
And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading of His Word. There are some things then we saw last week that we need as Christians to be uh, on our guard about or on our guard against. It's very easy and very tempting for us. All of us as Christians in any and every age that we live in are vulnerable to voices. We're vulnerable to voices. And the opinions and the moods and the uh, popular ideas of the day seep into our, our souls. In fact, if you want another example of that, just look back through your photo collection. Look back through your photo collection and discover there back, I don't know, well, it depends really how old you are, but, but um, in my case, I could easily go back and remember some of the fashion disasters of the 1970s. Now, some of them are retro and background again and, and uh, you know, uh, looking reasonably acceptable, but I well remember a whole series of uh, uh, monstrous fashions, some of which I wore myself uh, back in the day. I remember those white skin-tight trousers. I remember those platform shoes. I remember my sister's enormous hair. I remember all sorts of things. And at the time, you know, the shoulder pads of the 80s, you just have to look back and uh, through your average, uh, your average um, ph photographic collection in any household. And if it goes back far enough, even those of you who are like in your 20s can still look back and see the stuff you thought was cool when you were kids. Uh, ain't so cool now. Well, that's just an outward expression of what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the fact that we all of us conform at different times and seasons to what the majority are saying, to what the shops are selling, to what people think is uh, acceptable and cutting edge and new. And the same goes with what we think and believe inside. And Paul's preaching to a church that was founded on a gospel of the good news of the resurrection of Jesus was founded on the message that was spreading like wildfire through what was Asia Minor then, we know as Turkey now, and Greece. And people were coming and putting their faith in Jesus and hearing a message that said, you know, there was a man who claimed to be from God who was in Israel and who was put to death by the authorities in Jerusalem. He had performed many signs, many wonders, many miracles, Many people believed that he was the, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, but then they, the Romans put him to death. It was a scandalous, shameful death. It was a humiliating death, stripped, exposed, 
beaten up, flogged within an inch of his life, and finally nailed to a cross along with other common criminals outside the city walls and left there to die. And this man with, on whom there were all these expectations died and was laid in a tomb, and the tomb was sealed and a guard was posted. And three days later, when they went, the beginning of a new week after the Sabbath was over, they went to find, uh, to embalm that body and to do everything that they hadn't had time to do. And they discovered that the stone had been rolled away. And they discovered that the tomb was empty. And then gradually over the next days, they had encounters with this same Jesus who was alive, who let them touch him, who spoke to them, who knew them, who appeared amongst them, different people at different times, and disappeared again, but was real and alive and could be touched. And so, all of these people, including a group of 500 on one occasion, were witnesses that this was a real thing. It actually happened. Jesus actually came back to life again and proclaimed that by faith in Him as the Son of God, by believing that He was the Son of God, and by being baptized in His name and committing to a life of obeying and following His teachings, you could know that you too would share in that resurrection when the time came for you to, as Paul puts it here, fall asleep, to die, and to be raised again. That was what you guys believed, he says. That was your foundation. And so now as a church, now that you've uh, formed and you've got to know one another and you're a thing, there are some people amongst you saying, nah, there's no such thing as rising from the dead. And so we thought last week, and I don't want to go over all that we covered or I covered last week again, but to be absolutely certain that we are a resurrection people, to guard our own hearts and minds and attitudes in face of the shifting sands of popular opinion and cultural shift. And whatever the trends of the day will allow or will not allow. This weekend, of course, is, as many of you know, because there's rainbows everywhere, is Pride Weekend. A public declaration of an affirmation of, of uh, same-sex issues. Now, 40, 50, 60 years ago, that behavior was criminal. Now, I'm not talking, you know, one way or another, there's a very clear, I think, biblical Christian perspective on these issues. But in just 50 years, something has gone from being criminal to engage in it, and now it's almost criminal to disagree with it. So you can see how shifts of opinion and shifts of value move through a society And Paul is very aware that whatever the temptations might be, we are a people whose gospel does not change. We are a people whose foundations remain the same. And so he goes on then at reasonable length, and we looked at this last week, to consider not just that there's good evidence 
for the resurrection, and there are witnesses, some of whom are still alive and can be checked out. But then he goes on to think about the sheer illogicality that if you're going to say the dead are not raised, then that unravels everything all the way back to Jesus. It unravels the gospel that you believed in the first place. It unravels your very existence for being a church. It unravels everything. And whenever we think about the church, and we've all got our bugbears with the church in one way or another with the expression of the church, this denomination or that particular congregation or whatever, we've all got our bugbears with, with Christian, individual Christians and so on, but actually none of that is relevant. Our foundation is that Jesus rose from the dead and that by faith in the risen Christ, we may know the living God know His grace and forgiveness, know a life with Him now and a hope yet to come. And so, Paul says, if you start going down this road, it unravels all the way. But let's go to verse 20, because that's really where I want to look at today. Not the negative. These are the negative consequences, says Paul, up to that point. But now he's saying, but actually, here's the deal. Here's what Jesus has done. And if we do believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, let's think about what that means. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I love that, first fruits. I remember a few years ago having a bit of a kind of shiver up the spine moment when I realized that uh, on Ascension Day, you know, we celebrate and remember when Jesus wasn't just raised but ascended into heaven. And, and on that occasion, Jesus, the first fruits, that was the first of a human being, if you like, coming into the close, near, immediate presence of God. Now, it wasn't that holy and godly people hadn't died before then, but that Jesus being the first fruits was the beginning, the vanguard, the one who took into the presence of God a human body. Now, it's not that God hadn't had engagement and contact with humans down through all these thousand years of history, but to enter into the permanent abiding presence of God, Jesus was the first that did that, the first to take the risen present or the risen, a risen human body into the presence of God. It's why Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I've not yet ascended to my Father. I have to take this perfect first fruits offering into the presence of the Father as the first of millions and millions and millions of those who will come afterwards because of me. And so Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But since, for since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And, and we've looked at this along the way where we, we recognize when Jesus was baptized, that incredible moment where Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, Jesus of Nazareth, went down into the river, even though John said, but you've no need to be baptized. And Jesus said, let it be so for now. 
and he was baptized in to the waters of the sin of the people who'd gone in before, was baptized into that water, and was then raised. Someone's phone? Was then raised, and from that moment on, was no longer Jesus of Nazareth, but was the Son of Man. He was the Son of Man. He went right down into the dirt and the muck of sin and came up out of it to represent you. To represent you. To represent all humankind. And to advance the kingdom all the way to the cross to take on death for you. And to offer himself into the jaws of death and then be raised again to life for you, with you. And so he's the first fruits, and then because he is, if you like this, new Adam, so we too have the promise or share the promise that when he comes again, as Paul expected, as the church expected, it's why it took them at least 20, 25, 30 years to start writing the Gospels down because they expected Jesus to come back sooner. And so, Jesus is the first fruits, and then after and with all with Him, when He comes again, those who belong to Him. And then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. All dominion, authority, and power. You know, we, we live, or we, as a fellowship, we, 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 we're in this city center crossroads place. And when we were praying the other day, uh, we're very aware, I was certainly aware, and all other people were too, of, of the privilege and the responsibility of being a Christian community right in the city center at the heart of the city. Because all around us, we're surrounded by the signs and the symbols, the embodiments of dominion, authority, and power. I mean, just across the square there is, is Glasgow City Chambers, the council offices. All around us, are signs and representatives of institutions, of authorities that, 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 that have control and rule in our society. Just out the back here, we've got the faculty of procurators. In the street in front of us, representation of, of big business, of commerce, of finance. We're in a city that is surrounded by all of the signs and the symbols and the people who have authority and power. We're not that far away from the parliament in Edinburgh. There's a parliament, as we know, of course, in Westminster. And so in this world, when I asked you earlier on if you'd had a, a brush with the authorities, all of us understand who and what the authorities are, whether it be a council tax bill or a parking fine, whatever it be, there are authorities deciding all around us, and often at war with one another. Elsewhere, in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we read about the powers and the principalities, the unseen forces that are at work, and often at work to wage war against God. 
And so the, the shops in the street, and I don't want to sound niggardly, but a lot of the message that the shops in the street want to press are, you need this outfit or you need these new things to make you feel good or better about yourself, to affirm your value or your identity in face of other people. The political machinations that take place in the city chambers are people deciding how a city should be governed or ruled, what priorities uh, should influence the way that money is spent, whether on social care, on transport, on roads, how the infrastructure of the city should be developed. The financial institutions all about round about us want to get rich because they believe that wealth means security. And if you have money, you can have security, at least for this life. And so there are messages all around us. And in the world that we live in, I went, a few of us wandered through George Square on Friday afternoon, and, and uh, just to observe the anti-Trump demonstration that was filling George Square on Friday afternoon. And we are part of a world in which the earthly powers and principalities and the, 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 the jostling for power and dominion and authority is, is as ever uncertain. Where will Britain stand in relation to Europe? Will we end up being a lesser power? Will we end up, as some warn us, being a little colony, a plaything of Europe? Or will we assert our own independence and influence as a nation and re re restore sovereignty to ourselves? It's the winner-loser fear. What will the impact be of American politics, of Russian politics? All of what consumes our media headlines and their frenzy is to do with this stuff, dominion, authority, and power. And different voices and different agendas jostling for the upper hand. And so it's, it's quite telling, I suppose, to me that for 200 years, this witness to Jesus has sat in this place in the city. But meanwhile, other dominions and powers and agendas, a, mar a, a protest in the square, the orange marches last weekend, the, the, the pride march this weekend, all of these other voices and dominions and agendas, the business of the street, educational establishments, financial establishments, dominion, authority, and power all around us, all around us, trying to gain and keep the upper hand, have influence, hold sway, shape the minds and the hearts and the thinking. And in this one line, the enduring promise of the gospel, which has endured for 2,000 years, despite the best efforts of entire civilizations to crush it and snuff it out, still stands. There's still a community of believing people here and in countless other churches in this city. There are millions of believers who in the course of the 24-hour revolution of this planet will gather to declare their faith in the risen Jesus, will live with faith and expectation looking for the time when Jesus will come again, and despite the best efforts to destroy and silence the gospel, there is still a community of people waiting for the time when Jesus will come 
and all dominion, authority, and power will be put under His feet. After He's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. We read in the Philippian hymn, in Philippians chapter 2, that after that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. Let me just remind you of this divine parabola, this descent and this rising. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, not just nothing, but a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. How low can you go? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul just puts out this timeline where Jesus will come back one day for you and me. Maybe I'll be alive, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll have fallen asleep. And he will come back, and all authority and dominion and power, all the wars and all the, uh, the, 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 the struggles in this world, Trump and Putin and their successors in office, all government of every shade and hue across the political spectrum, all business and financial systems, all warfare and industry and hierarchy, all will be made subject to Jesus, and He will destroy all of them in order to bring everything together in Him. We are destined and called to be a people of unity with God in Jesus and of unity with one another. And so, He's going to destroy all dominion and everything that doesn't line up with the will of God in order that He might then finally destroy death, which He's already defeated, and then everything will be made subject to the Father. Why? What is God's aim? God's aim is to bring all those who are willing and who believe that it's a real thing and a possibility, and not just that, but a, but a, a guaranteed hope that God intends to bring all things together, all peoples together who are willing. He intends to bring us towards new heavens and a new earth, where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, because there'll be no more warring and one-upmanship and trying to get the upper hand and trying to get my better at your expense. And all of the things which fuel and drive the fighting and the tussling and the wrestling of politics and finance and business and all the things that we've considered about, and to bring them all together, and to bring them all together so that God may be all and in all, 
and that we might be a people and a society and a world that is no longer wearied or burdened with a relentless struggle for survival or significance or security or confidence, love or affirmation, hope or healing. See, these all seem like fine words and pipe dreams to us. Wouldn't it be great if, was it the new seekers that used to sing, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony, and it was lovely, they had floaty skirts and they held hands, and it it seemed like an idyllic dream, and it seemed like a ridiculous dream. But you see, it seems ridiculous because it's so alien to what we know, experience, or understand. And it can often seem to us to be so beyond our grasp, but can I believe in it? Can I believe that one day all of this struggle and division and hatred and hurt will be brought to an end? All of the brokenness and the poverty and the warmongering and the injustice. And I mentioned that we were on holiday in Berlin um, last week, and the good news about me is I have a short memory, so, you know, within just a very few weeks, you won't be getting any more holiday illustrations, because I'll be like, so on to something else. I find myself reading a novel, a Peter May novel. I quite like Peter May, crime fiction. And this one was called Entry Island, and I won't tell you the whole plot, because you don't need to know it, but let's just, a, a feature of it, an element of the book was looking at the Highland clearances and describing some of the brutality of what ordinary people of Scotland and Ireland experienced in being cleared off their land by wealthy landowners in order to make way for sheep. And just the sheer bloody brutality of how people were handled and treated and disposed of because they were inconvenient. And it seemed to me that there was a certain irony in considering something that took place in the middle of the 18th century at the same time as Ruth and I were going out on a daily basis and encountering signs and memorials and remembrances of the Nazi area of Berlin, Nazi area of Berlin, and at the same time, the post-war east-west divide where Berlin was a city divided in two. And people who tried to escape from one side to another, I saw a moving portrait in a a memorial display of a woman, and I checked her dates of birth just idly and discovered that this woman had been shot trying to escape from East Berlin to West Berlin, and she'd done it on the eve of her 60th birthday. (laughs) I don't know anything about her story, but I can imagine someone saying, you know what? I'm not going to spend my retirement years here. I'm going to take my chances but she didn't make it. Just another statistic of those picked off by a soldier at a crossing point. And it just struck me that the kind of craziness of lining up that clearances experience in Scotland in the mid-18th century with Nazi Germany with the post-war DDR period. Because what was common to all three was man's brutal inhumanity to man that life can become incredibly cheap and disposable. And sadly, we see it still in our world, in Syria, in Yemen, amongst the Rohingya people, now in refugees from Burma or Myanmar. Life can be incredibly cheap. And there are the important people, and then there are the insignificant people. 
And the good news of the gospel of resurrection is that Jesus intends to stamp out all of that dominion and power and the abuse of it and welcome and invite all who will dare to believe in something as crazy as resurrection, that actually the better world we hope and dream for is not a song in floaty skirts by the new seekers, but is the gospel signed, sealed, and delivered by the risen Jesus. And so Paul does not want to let this church drift into the place where something that Jesus died to guarantee for you becomes something too crazy to believe. It's the lifeblood. It's the heartbeat of the Christian church. It has been for 2,000 years, and it will be till Jesus comes again. Because God wants to make sure that there are people who believe till Jesus comes again in face of the uncertainties and the anxieties of the shifting of dominion and rule in our world in this visible sphere that actually he's driving another agenda and he will see it to its end and he invites you to be part of it. And so just winding up this section really quickly, he talks there this mysterious one-off reference that there are some people who believed so passionately that when their loved ones died before they had a chance to be baptized, even though they had believed, people were baptized for them. Paul doesn't really endorse the practice. It's the only reference, but I didn't feel I could go over this without, you know, what is that being baptized for the dead thing? Why do we not do that? Well, it was a, a practice that, that didn't really uh, have momentum. Paul certainly doesn't endorse it, but it seems that there were people who were so concerned that their loved ones who had believed uh, be in the kingdom that they were baptized for them. And then Paul refers to his own experience. Do you think I would put myself through the life I do if I wasn't convinced that resurrection, that the promise that God has set in place is a reality. Do you believe it's a reality for you? You know, whatever brush with the authorities you have, whatever systems and, and uh, places of power and authority and rule and control affect or influence your life, they're all passing away. They're all passing away. And despite the fact that this building, no doubt for some, is just an inconvenience, and wouldn't it be easier if the buses could go through instead of round, and the marches didn't have to go round it, and, you know, if this thing would just get out of the way, well, do you know what? Jesus has always been awkward that way. He doesn't just step aside. He stands right there in the middle, and he says, deal with me. What are you going to do? Are you going to walk around me, or are you going to come in? You're going to be mine and be with me. That's our mission. That's our calling. That's our heart. And that's what we are called to say to the people of Glasgow. However many other agendas might motivate and propel people around the city streets, we stand here to declare the risen Jesus so that next generation and the next and the next can know the hope that we have come to believe. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for this invitation to see our passing away world with all its high-level and important machinations 
in the realm of politics nationally, globally. And the impact of dominions and powers and authorities, even on the very planet. And yet you have declared by the resurrection of Jesus that all of these things will be brought under the feet of Jesus, and that every knee, whether willingly or unwillingly, will bow and confess that He is Lord, and that everyone, everyone who puts their faith and their hope in the risen Jesus will share in a world and a reality and a community of which we can only dream, but in which we hope and trust that there is a new world coming. And so, Lord, as we go into the ordinary places of our work and service this coming week, help us to see this world in the light of the gospel and the knowledge that it's passing away. Give to us the opportunity and the confidence to speak of the hope that we have and to do so in respectful ways, but to do so in passionate ways with conviction. And in just a moment of silence, we pray now, Lord, for those places and those people that we are going to encounter this week at work or in our community or in our networks of friends. And Lord, as we pray for the impact that we would love to have and ask you that we might have, so we pray now, Lord, for those who are the victims of, the, uh, of a system that so often is unjust and uncaring. And so we think, Lord, of those in our city who are on the margins, of those who struggle because of poverty or brokenness, of body, mind, or spirit. Lord, we thank you for the many agencies in the city that seek to minister to and affirm and help in Jesus' name those who find themselves in chronic poverty or brokenness because lots of things and people have failed them. Father, we thank you for Glasgow City Mission and Bethany Christian Trust. We thank you for Street Connect. We thank you for so many projects and initiatives for the street pastors that go out from this building. But so much more besides that seek to be a sign of your grace in a world of indifference. And Lord, we pray in amongst the turmoil of nations for our leaders. We pray for uh, Theresa May and the government, we pray for all that is going on at the moment in amongst the complexities of Brexit negotiations and who said what and the comings and goings of political careers. And we pray in faith, Lord, that you who have the affairs of nations in your hand, Lord, will use whatever turns out over these next months and years to your glory till Jesus come again. So we pray for those with political power and influence, for those in the council chambers across the way, for the MSPs in Holyrood, for the MPs in Westminster, and we ask, Lord, that you give to them 
wisdom and integrity in all their dealings. We pray for those in their number who are believers, that you will use them as salt and light in those arenas. And we pray, Father, that, Lord, you would help us ever to see and remember when we are troubled or anxious about what may happen or be happening, that you, Lord, hold dominion over all that you've made and that Jesus has sealed it, sealed it by his death and resurrection. And in his name we pray. Amen.